Hi there! Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. One of the parenting choices we made, and it's not like we had a discussion about it, it just happened. We never said, go clean your room. We never even said, make your bed. I've heard of parents saying things like that to their kids, and I don't get that. Why? I get the sense that it's one of those things people say because they've heard it on TV or something, and and they think that's what you're supposed to do as parents. When the kids were toddlers, we would teach them how to put their toys and clothes and things away. But as they grew older, we didn't do that anymore. To us, it was like, that's your room. That's your space. You can keep it the way you want. I think everybody needs a place that is their own, that is private, where they have their things the way they want them. It's a safe place that they can go to and feel free, relaxed. It's about having boundaries. You know, a kid has so little control over anything in their life, and everybody needs that feeling of being in control. So we allowed our kids to have control over their space. If, if they're sharing a room, then each kid has their space within the room to have control over. I'm not going to go in and touch your stuff. I'm not going to look through your stuff. I'm not going to throw your stuff out or give it away. Why should I care if their bed is made? I don't have to sleep in it. I would ask for their sheets so I could wash them and help put new ones back on if they needed help till they were old enough to do it themselves. But I don't give a shit if they don't make their bed. What's even the point of that? If it was time to vacuum, we'd suggest they pick their stuff up off the floor. And if they didn't pick their stuff up, we'd vacuum around it. You know, I'll catch that spot next time. And when they got old enough to have vacuuming as a chore, then they would say the same thing to each other. I wonder if people think this is how you teach them to keep their space clean. Because you know what? Here's the magic I never had to tell them to clean their room. They would take it upon themselves to say, hey, I don't like the way my room is feeling right now, so I'm going to clean it. And they did. And they'd come to us and say, I cleaned my room, come and see it. And they would proudly show off their work. They learned how they liked their space to be. And then they moved out and they already knew how they liked their homes to be. And, And they keep them that way. I suppose they learned by example, too, by seeing the way we kept the rest of the home. And certainly the common area needs to be tidied to our liking. If they'd set up the trains in a really cool layout or something, I'd let them keep it that way for a couple of days because it was a lot of work to put together and they were having a lot of fun with it and and they were proud of it. But then after a couple of days, I'd say, okay, time to clean this up. And they would. So... I don't know, something about mutual respect or something. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 27 A Bad Feeling There it is. Derry heaved a sigh of relief, though only the first stage of this dreadful journey was over. That morning, Derry had felt a rush of freedom as he burst out beyond the natural gateway of the pass and into the open air. 
The opening was flanked by stands of aspens, trembling and fluttering in the west wind that scurried along the southern edge of the mountain range. He darted back up to help Jeskelin, who struggled with an anxious trig, as Skimnoddle guided the kier-laden carrier. The halfling's pony whinnied his aversion to fending for himself as he brought up the rear. That was a couple of hours before midday, according to the approximate position of the obscured sun. They journeyed all that day toward the gaping cleft that ancient water had carved in the earth. Now the enormous ravine, known as Bolivar Chasm, stretched out before them and extended into the distance on either side. Somehow Derry felt that everything would be fine now that they'd triumphed over the pass. Evening was upon them. "'Shall we camp here?' Derry consulted his companions. Jeskelin nodded. "'I do not want to follow the edge of the gorge at night and get too close.' Besides, Skimnoddle agreed, Kier seems restless. It had been so long since Kier had spoken a word that they'd fallen into the habit of speaking of her as if she couldn't hear. Derry felt a little self-conscious about it, more so because that morning he'd refused to give her any pain-relieving tea, which may have contributed to her restlessness. Derry'd explained to the others that she should be sufficiently healed for her pain to have abated on its own, but in his soul he was punishing her for his discovery of last night, a discovery he intended to keep to himself. "'It has been four days since we separated from Fennel,' the mage remarked as they made camp. "'How much longer would you estimate it will take them to reach the chasm?' Derry shrugged. "'Fennel hinted at knowing a direct path, but I don't know where it might be.' I guess it's a full day from the mountain to the chasm. A thousand years ago, a river had flowed southeast out of Burns Gulf, far to the northwest, beyond the mountain range the company had just descended. Now it was dry, but had left in its wake a long and wide ravine full of twisting trails carved out by the streams. The rivulets had converged on a deep lake before exiting the canyon through a narrow chasm that flowed southeast. As the valley once united with plainlands, it widened and became a shallower river. So many ages had passed since the river had ceased to exist that the farther extensions of the dry riverbed were barely recognizable as such. A traveler with little tracking skill might cross the grassy lowland area without knowing that a river had passed across the land. Where the river once egressed at the far end of the ravine made a decent landmark for the company to reunite and regroup. Skimnoddle whipped up a paltry meal with the bits and pieces from their saddlebags, combining them with the jackrabbit who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The three friends ate, and Derry spoon-fed some of the broth to Kier, who, much to his gratification, not only swallowed it, but kept it down. A few spoonfuls were all she required, but it was the most she had ingested since her fall nearly a week ago. Later, Skimnoddle went for a twilight walk. To organize my thoughts, thrusting aside the fretful ones while profiting from and filing away the constructive optimistic ones, he said. Jeskelin meditated, and Derry brewed Kier's tea. While it steeped, he knelt at her side and checked her pulse and temperature. At one point, she opened her eyes. Kier, he said gently, brushing strands of hair away from her face. In the firelight, he could not tell if her eyes were clear or clouded. One word answered his query. Misha, she said breathlessly. He shook his head sadly. No, it's Derry. Who's Misha? he asked hopefully. The muscles in her eyelids contracted ever so slightly. Had she understood? Derry, she whispered. 
Yes. He gave her an encouraging smile. To his dismay, this did not have the effect he'd hoped for. Her eyes brimmed with tears the way a tidal pool fills with water. Then her brow furrowed anxiously, and she whispered something that sounded like matching gift, but he couldn't be sure. He patted her hand. Yes, we're bringing Alon a gift. He didn't know about the matching part. She seemed to be trying to shake her head. He couldn't tell if it were sadness, confusion, or frustration. Gift, she whispered again. The physicker fed her some tea, and soon her body reacted to the medicine and drew her away into sleep. Skimnoddle returned soon after. Before Derry had a chance to speak, the halfling jumped in. If you were to ask whether I found my walk successful, I would have to supplicate for clarification. Were you perhaps making a reference to whether I feel in good health physically, having stretched my short legs to their greatest extent in a rapid, alternating fashion? Or, as I suspect is more likely the case, were you alluding to my exiting comment as per my thoughts, specifically the profiting from clause? Having elucidated your purpose, you would likely elicit that not only my thoughts, but the evidence before me have driven me to a proposal. Derry hesitated before speaking, just in case the diatribe had not concluded. Apparently the lower altitude has loosened his tongue. What proposal, he said. Just this, dear captain. My submission would be that we increase the distance between ourselves and the pass from which we descended this morning. He lowered his voice. I suggest we make this relocation at the earliest possible convenience. Perhaps now. Derry's quizzical expression did not carry to Skimnoddle in the flickering light. What? he asked, his impatience betraying his loss of hope. I don't understand what you're saying. Skimnoddle, in a display of uncharacteristic sensitivity, knelt down next to the captain and put a hand on his arm. I am sorry to trouble you, Derry, but while I walked, I smelled smoke. Now I know you'll say that it was from our fire, so I will forestall your suggestion by pointing out that I walked west. The wind is from the north this evening. Derry stared at him dumbly. He knew the words ought to make sense, but he couldn't piece them together. From the mountains, Skimnoddle went on. My point, Captain, is that it was someone else's fire. "'Someone who was well below the apex of the past tonight, on this side. "'It could be a friend, but then it could be a foe. "'I don't know of any friends who would be following us, so I recommend we move.' "'Finally, Derry understood. "'But I'm so tired.' "'They disturbed Jeskelin's meditation to include him in the discussion. "'How far along the chasm's edge could they travel at night?' More important, how long would it take the people on the pass to catch up to them? Anyone on horseback could travel swifter than they could with Kier's Travoy. Skimnoddle voiced the suggestion that Derry had been hoping to avoid. What if we were to enter the ravine? There was indeed a downward path not far from where they sat that would lead them into the heart of the chasm. Once, many years ago, Derry had followed his leader down within the trails that circled around hills and spires of rock, pits that were once waterfalls or had been gouged out by swirling undercurrents. Derry wouldn't choose to go down there if there were any other option. If the party on the pass were indifferent to them, they would be out of sight, out of mind, for no one would enter the chasm unless they had to. If they were being pursued, which Derry did not like to imagine, at least they would have a head start. 
which we'll need, he thought, looking dolefully at Kier. All right, the captain conceded. Would you be willing to take a watch? For a little while? If I could just have some rest, then we could head down into the ravine at moonrise. Skimnoddle nodded. Derry fell into a surprisingly deep sleep. Fennel held his breath as he neared the corner. His companions assured him that the invisibility hat did work even better now at sunset. The first time he tried Valraker's gift in broad daylight, Fennel had looked like an outline of himself. Now only sudden movements drew attention, the way a mosquito catches the corner of the eye. Fennel felt sure that once the sun was down altogether, he'd be reliably invisible, and the fragrant feather, contrary to having a strong scent that masked his own, absorbed the odors around it, eliminating all but the expected smells of local nature. His noiseless footfalls were imperceptible even to elven guards. They should be completely unaware of his passing. Still, his heart thudded like a rug-beater. He wished he had a magical item to cover that sound. He paused behind a fir, the last obstacle between him and the entrance. Placing his hand on the trunk, he murmured to it for reassurance. "'Fear not,' it said. "'The woodland creatures know you are of pure heart.' "'Thank you, my friend.' "'Good, so it was just the elves he had to worry about.' "'Good? His own people?' With a deep breath, Fennel plunged out into the open— Though the darkness was gathering, he paced himself carefully. It was like walking down a long corridor, the doorway at the end seeming to stay just as distant no matter how many steps he took toward it. He was definitely in easy arrow range now. Any minute, one of the guards would look up, see him coming, and cry the alarm. Somewhere up the mountainside, Janik was leading Harley and Frederick along the ridge through the trees. They'd meet him at the other end, and he could approach the tree from the front. She might not trust him if he snuck up from behind. With any luck, the trees were communicating well today and allowing the passage of the two-legged beings, although there was no wood elf there to translate for them. Focus, Fennel scolded himself. Don't worry about them. He was close enough now that if he weren't invisible, the guards would be able to throw stones at him. Okay, veer to the right. Nice big gap between those two. They could almost spit on him now. Fennel stopped short. A guard had lifted her head and was looking right at him. He raised his hands, about to tell her not to shoot. Well, it took you long enough, the guard said in Elvish. Fennel shut his mouth and glanced over his shoulder. He ducked just in time for a medium-sized dryad to swoop through where his head just was. Her butterfly-like wings were an unnatural-looking striped pattern, as though she'd had them painted. He knew dryads did that sort of thing, but he'd never seen anything like this one. As he followed her with his gaze, he was pretty sure she turned and winked at him. He breathed a sigh and adjusted the invisibility hat. "'It's only that the Sylvan Sprites returned with a report,' the dryad began, but then she flew too far away for her tiny voice to carry back to Fennel's ears. It didn't matter what she said. The result was more important.' The three guards at the western end of the entrance followed her over to speak with the commanding officer, leaving an enormous gap for Fennel to slip through. Biting his lower lip, he focused his gaze straight ahead and walked. If I can just make it past the guards! What's going on? A guard nearly collided with Fennel on his way out of the woods. Fennel danced a few polka steps to avoid him, heart banging in his throat. He was through. He walked about fifty paces beyond the entrance and the stretch of guards who protected it. Then he broke into a run.
Janet cursed and swore inside his head, but dutifully kept his hand off the handle of his axe. Losing his temper with a bunch of trees at this point would serve no purpose. The damned things seemed to have just a terrific bloody sense of humor, but whatever it was they were laughing at, the dwarf didn't get the joke. They were green and leafy. All right, needly too, then, he corrected himself as a pine branch swiped him across the face. And they were much taller than he. That's all he knew. He hesitated to add that trees also made marvelous fuel. Frederick and Harley followed along, and each man led a horse with layout tied behind Harley's. Traveling along the side of the mountain was tougher than walking the bare ground, but whatever Fennel had said to the trees had been effective. Fennel said the trees were on their side. So don't do anything to rile them or you'll blow the whole thing. Janik didn't know where this confident take-charge elf had come from, but this new fellow certainly seemed to have everything under control. And he had not one, not two, but three other men following his orders. Janik couldn't help but be pleased for the young fellow. The trees, for their part, showed the trio the path by shifting aside. They never did it so Janet could see the bowls move, but the direction they were to head was plain as the hair on his face. Whack! A massive pine cone dropped and clonked him on the head. The dwarf looked up to raise a fist at the perpetrator and promptly received another one right in the eye. Dang it, I only have the one good one, he moaned, as they rubbed their branches together in self-congratulation. How much longer till we reach the tree, he grumbled. Fennel kept his eyes and ears open for more elven or human guards who may be posted along the trail. The path itself was wide enough for half a dozen soldiers to walk abreast. He wondered how much farther he had to go. The slow incline of the path wasn't nearly as steep as the walls on either side that formed a V. Still, it would get to him after a while. He'd been running for at least an hour and his breath had shortened. Finally, he gave in and slowed to a walk. He had been a child when last he was here, and he'd been on horseback that time, so his memory provided him no answers. Looking around, he saw no landmarks that meant anything to him either. A bat swooped around his head and carried on. Moments later, a raccoon scurried across his path and melted into the darkness. Fennel wished he'd thought to eat something before starting on this crazy venture. Was that the last corner just ahead? Psst! He stopped and looked wildly about, an arrow instantly ready to fly. "'No, no, up here,' the voice said. "'You must get out of sight.' Fennel searched upwards and saw a screech owl sitting on a particularly long branch, almost as if it had been posted there on watch. Fennel could just make out its ear tufts silhouetted against the sky. "'Quickly,' it insisted, and flew down to encourage Fennel with its wings up the steep wall into the trees. "'Why?' Fennel held his bow close so it wouldn't crack against a fur, and realized, with some embarrassment, that he wouldn't have used it anyway. I could never release an arrow against another elf. Shh, the owl said, and flitted back up to its branch, leaving Fennel concealed behind the thick foliage. A moment later, Fennel appreciated the owl. Evening, Claire, a male elvish voice said. Karis? Fennel craned his neck to see through the trees, but all he could see were shadows. A patrol of night guards headed away from the tree. Fennel couldn't see how many there were, but these were wood elves. They needed no lanterns to see at night, and they walked just as silently as he. Hat or no hat, he'd have walked right into them. Any news? 
Sylvan sprites reported more enchanted animals heading into the mountains from Donnan Forest, the owl replied, punctuating with little hooting noises. You did not hear it from me, but I wish Lord Fearon would look into that. Fennel caught his breath. Clare squawked. Well, looks like rain. Good night, Clare. And Karis and his patrol continued down the hill. Clare floated noiselessly down to peer at him from another branch. Thanks, Fennel said. No sweat, the owl replied. It should be clear sailing from here. I appreciate your assistance. Is there any word of my friends who are trying to reach the tree through the forest? I'll go have a look. And with that, Claire whooshed upward and away. Fennel heard her screech as he stepped back out onto the trail. That sound freezes the blood in high summer. At last the ground leveled off, and Fennel knew the tree was near. He peered around the last bend to be sure an ambush wasn't waiting for him. Don't be silly, these creatures are trying to help you. The path opened to reveal a glade in the center of which was his destination. He hastened toward the tree of life. It dwelt in a pool of luminescence, defying the nature of which it was a part by merging the characteristics of several trees. Its arms were an angular mass of reaching and crisscrossing branches, resembling a larch, yet it was not a conifer. The dense beech-like foliage with waxy, sparsely-toothed leaves gave the tree a sculptured appearance. The ferns and wildflowers gathered at its feet fed off its nutrients, and life flowed through them so they glowed, casting an eerie radiance upward from below. A spring bubbled up from under the tree, forming a tiny pond before the water trailed off into the trees on the far side. Cattails outlined the water, and the surface was dotted with the brightest water lilies Fennel had ever seen. Their shiny petals shone like lanterns in the night. Fennel wended his way through the ferns and cattails to the stepping stones that would take him right up to the tree. This was such a magical moment. He wished Kier could be here. She would appreciate this. Almost reverently, the elf tiptoed across the rocks and knelt at the base of the tree. In spite of himself, he felt jittery. I've got to hurry. The water skin was slung across his chest and he ducked under its strap. He laid it on the ground next to him and placed both his palms on the bowl of the Tree of Life. I would not presume to disturb your splendor if it weren't for a dire need, he said to her. To his surprise, vibrations tingled through her skin and into his hands. He looked up into her branches, and her wonder and magnificence rained on him. It was like music filling the air, filling his body, filling his soul. A symphony of, well, life. A glorious grin split his face. You are welcome here, the tree of life told Fenelfirin. Fennel did not want to leave, but he had to hurry. At some point another patrol would arrive, and he had to be hidden in the trees by then. He kissed the tree's skin and held the lip of the water skin up to the little wooden trough that waited there. He pulled out the small stopper and released the liquid, letting the lifeblood of the tree drip into the travelling vessel. Fennel was surprised by its consistency. He'd expected it to be thick, like the sap from a cedar or a pine, but it was more like water. Still, it would take a while to fill the water skin. After five minutes, it was about a quarter full. A few minutes later, a third. Suddenly, his blood froze. It was the piercing cry of a screech owl. Was Claire returning to tell him his friends were on their way? Oh, please hurry! 
As if she'd heard him, the sap ran more quickly. Something whooshed overhead, and Fennel glanced up from his task to see Claire alighting in the branch directly above. Oh, hello. He turned back to make sure he hadn't wasted any of the precious liquid. Did you find them? Sure. Something in the tone of Claire's voice startled him, and he looked up. A night patrol of ten elves stood just inside the circle of light emanating from the tree. Could they see him? Damn, I'll have to be satisfied with half a water skin of sap. Slowly, slowly he replaced the stopper in the bark of the tree, thinking that it must be visible even if his hat concealed him. Thank you, Claire. Fennel recognized the voice of the same patrolman, and his heart sank. It had been too easy. He ought to have been better prepared. Now they'd caught him red-handed. "'So you decided to lead them back to me, huh?' he asked Claire as he replaced the cap of the water-skin and slung it over his shoulder next to his bow. Claire daintily shrugged her screech-owl shoulders. "'Karis gives me voles.' "'I can't compete with that,' Fennel said. "'Now, Fennelfiren, I may not be able to see you, but Claire can, and she is sitting directly above you. Unless you can fly, she will continue to be above you, so I know exactly where to aim.' "'You would shoot another elf?' Fennel asked, disgusted. "'Ah, so you still have elvish ethics. Then neither will you shoot me. Come away from the tree.' "'Look, Karis,' Fennel rose and glanced up at the traitorous owl. "'I don't know what you people have heard from my father.' "'I don't ask the whys and wherefores. An order is an order. You're not welcome here.' "'That's not what the tree told me.' Fennel darted out from underneath Claire. Before she was aware, he dashed across the stepping stones and was following the stream toward the trees. Claire shrieked and went after him. He couldn't do anything about the movement of the plants through which he crashed. Karis let an arrow fly, and by sheer luck it only caught him in his right calf. Down he tumbled with a cry, and his hat flipped off. He tried to scramble to his feet, but failed, overcome by pain and shock that Karis had shot him. Claire dived down at him, and he batted her away as he crawled frantically through the dark purple monk's hood and orange columbine. Karis and his men were coming, arrows aimed, though they did not release them. A whistle sounded from somewhere, and Fennel fell to the earth among the plants and hid his head as a cloud of light erupted from the base of the tree in a flurry and flapping of wings. Craning his neck to see, Fennel stared in wonder. Much of the light that bathed the tree of life was not radiance, but nymphs, thousands of them, tiny creatures with the swiftness of hummingbirds that glowed like a hand-shielded candle flame. Claire shrieked again and fell to the ground, a tiny pinkish arrow sticking out of her chest. Fennel heard Karis's voice, Nelferch, what are you? And the elven captain dropped like a sack of bricks, as if dead. Within half a moment, the entire patrol was down. Fennel's body drooped, and he allowed himself to moan in pain. He didn't know which was the greater wound, the arrow in his leg, or that he'd been shot by one of his own kind. Everyone has gone mad. A nymph alighted on a stout stem next to Fennel, and he gazed at her in awe. He'd never seen one before. She stood no taller than a squirrel on its haunches. I'm Nelferch. She tossed her glimmering hair out of her pale eyes as she glanced about at the carnage and grinned. I don't know how we're going to explain this one to them, but she shrugged. Oh, well. She reached into her... 
Fennel could only think of it as clothing, though the term didn't suit the way the garments fluttered like aspen leaves in pale, luminous colors. Quickly, drink this! She held out a little vial that could not have contained more than a few milliliters of liquid. He took it but looked a question at her. It's a healing potion, she said as if he were an idiot. You think you're going to make it through the pass on that? She pointed to where two nymphs worked on removing the arrow from Fennel's leg. Are they? Fennel waved a hand around the clearing. She giggled. No, they're not dead. Our arrows only put people to sleep. We've bought you an hour or so. Well, except Claire. And Nelferch giggled again. She took the same hit as the elves, and she's a mite smaller than they. She'll be asleep till tomorrow night. Her tittering was joined by the others, and the little clearing was filled with music. Fennel drank the sweet liquid and shook his head in amazement at how quickly it began to work. The nymphs had used their small hands to work the arrow out, and with the potion the wounds started healing over. After about five minutes the bleeding had stopped and the lesion looked a couple of days old. The pain was lessened considerably, so it felt like a bad cramp rather than a nasty arrow wound. "'Thank you for this,' he finished lamely. She feigned embarrassment. Oh, twere nothing. The tree welcomed you. I don't know where these guys figure they're of higher consequence than she is. I can't believe they fired at me. An overwhelming sense of betrayal seeped over him like a fog. A wood elf had shot him. His father had ordered that he be turned away. Sorry, Fennel Fearin. I know the Lord of Donan is your father, but things have been rather odd lately. Anyway, and she gave her pretty little shrug again, only the tree makes the rules around here. She sighed. The elves won't speak to us for weeks. Fennel couldn't help himself. He laughed softly. Well, I don't suppose you'll miss much. The other nymphs twittered and flitted about, and a strange contrary happiness began to flush out his melancholy. The tree, may I go thank her properly? Sure, go ahead if you like. It's not as if she doesn't already know. You can waste your hour however you like, but when these fellows wake up, they're not going to be in high spirits. Fennel speedily went and thanked the tree and returned. I have to wait for my friends anyway. The nymph slapped her hand against her forehead. Silly me, she cried. I forgot to tell you that we sent them on. You should be able to catch up with them quickly, though. Just follow the spring stream through there, and the trees will show you the way. You know that much. Oh, and listen to directions from chipmunks, but not the squirrels. They're nothing but nuisances. She gestured to two other nymphs who flitted over. These two will accompany you to light your path. Fennel thanked Nelferch and her friends, and snatching up his invisibility hat, limped through the trees. As she watched him run off, Nelferch looked about her at the sleeping elves and said, Oh, what harm can it do? And fired another arrow into each of them. Gilvray stood with his back to the camp and breathed the smoke-scented pine forest surrounding him. With hands clasped behind his back, he faced tomorrow's journey. It would all be downhill, literally. The Major sensed he was gaining on his quarry, and consequently his nerves rattled with anticipatory triumph. They were making such excellent time, better even, than he'd expected, and if he pushed them to be up before dawn again— out of the pass in the early morning, and nothing between us and them but grass. And then what? Information first and foremost, but then Gilvray would have to apprehend Kier because she was the one who not only stole the rune pattern, but actually breached the cave doors, trespassing on ancient protected ground. Her friends aren't going to let her go without a fight. Maybe he'd apprehend them all. His twelve men against Kier's half-dozen? 
a cinch. Nevertheless, Ryerson Gilvray steeled himself. "'I have to stop,' Fennel moaned, "'just for a little.' Nelford Chisero's would have kept Karras and his patrol asleep for a while, but they were likely hot on Fennel's trail by now, and they'd be able to negotiate this path with greater agility than his own little party. "'But I've been hobbling along all night.' Fennel lowered himself onto a salal-covered deadfall, leaving Layout waiting patiently next to the stream that was the runoff from the spring by the Tree of Life. It was also their path. Fennel lay down on his back, lifting his wounded right leg onto the log, and shut his eyes. Harley checked the elf's wound to ensure he hadn't damaged it further. It looks pretty good. That was quite a potion she gave you. Can you imagine if she'd given me a standard-sized dose? Fennel agreed. Still, I'm sure your nymph friend did not intend for you to run non-stop on it. Harley pulled Fennel's trouser leg down again. A few minutes, then, and we must go. Frederick shifted his weight from one foot to another and held on to his and Harley's horses. The walk was challenging for the animals in spite of not carrying their riders. They had tried riding but decided it would be easier for all concerned if they led the animals. It wasn't so much a path as it was the bank of the stream, and the slippery rocks were many. The moon, just past full, still gave only piecemeal light through the clouds and branches. Janik stood a few paces upstream, watching back toward the coming dawn and listening for any sounds of approaching elves. Fennel didn't bother telling him there was not much point. Elves could travel noiselessly, even when they hurried. They'll be upon us before we know they're here. This thought served only to frustrate him. He'd caught up with his friends after about an hour of limping after the flying torches. The two nymphs had left him to return to the tree once he'd found his friends. They would have served not only to light the way, but as signal beacons for the patrol of wood elves that would surely catch up with them soon. The tree might make the rules, but the elves were certainly not listening. "'I think we should go now, Fennel,' Frederick said in a low voice. "'I have a bad feeling about this.' "'I agree.' Fennel reluctantly rose, wincing, and picked up Layout's reins. It's too quiet. Remember a few weeks ago, I was talking about um, Matt finding a new bread recipe and how you're supposed to use the sifter on the flour, and then I talked about how I wish I still had my mum's sifter. So the other day, my phone rings, and it's my son and his wife saying that they've just listened to that episode, and they're calling to tell me that they have the sifter. <laughs> my son had a whole bunch of my mom's stuff after she died, and among all of her kitchen stuff was that awesome little sifter. So they might even bring it up for me to use and play with and make the fun little sound. I'm so excited that it's still in the family. Oh, and one other important piece of information, my niece Rhiannon's book is out. It's from Orca Publishing, and it's a picture book called Leopold's Leotard by Rhiannon Wallace, illustrated by Risa Hugo. So check that out, especially if you've got little ones. Thank you so much to my family, Matt, David and Heather, who have my mum's sifter, and Maggie. Thanks, David and Sharon. Shout out to the original six. And thanks so very much to you for listening. Now, 
go be fantastic.